You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 121. Subscribe to us, leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check us out at codingblocks.net, where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I am www.allenunderwood. I'm Joe Zach, who does not smack his lips anymore. Oh. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and well, first, I want to know, like, how long did you have to practice that www? And I'm Michael Outlaw. It actually worked. I don't know. I didn't practice at all. And it just somehow worked once. <laughs> once. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. All right, so today we're continuing on talking about designing data-intensive applications, and we're still kind of laying the groundwork here, talking about uh, scalability to the scale up, scalability, <laughs> Ella, Ella, Ella. Uh, so <laughs> about scalability and things like load parameters and performance numbers, which uh, I think is actually surprisingly cool. I was surprisingly happy with this uh, section here, so I hope you will enjoy it. Cool. So I guess uh, with that, we'll get into a little bit of podcast news. You know, we shrank it back down this time. Last time we actually, we had more than we had in a while. So first off, we like to start with the reviews. So, hey, thank you everybody that actually wrote in a review because we were kind of sad last time. Like we were like, oh man, I hope there's at least one. This will be like the first time in a hundred some odd episodes that we didn't have any. We had one. So, or no, we had two last time, right? Yeah. So at any rate, uh, everybody came out in droves and did it this time. So here we go. Hot Reload Jalapeno. That was one on Stitcher, by the way. Uh, Leonique, Leonique, not sure on that one. Anonymous, somebody chose not to put anything. And Juke0815. All right. Uh, over on iTunes, we got Bobby Richard, which I think is the Bobby Richard, maybe that you uh, said it know. wrong. That is a strike. Yeah. Is, is it really Richard? It is it Richard. Really is. Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry, Bobby. I thought people were just messing with you and <laughs> they pronounced your name like that. No, he, he's from Bayou Land. Yes. Oh man. Okay. Well, uh, sorry for calling you out and then like underlining it and bolding it and highlighting it. <laughs> oh, Bobby Richard, uh, Sean needs new glasses. Uh, Teshi Win, Vassal 07 and the Jin John. I really appreciate those views. Uh, you know, it keeps the, uh, the wheel keeps on turning. Um, so big thank you to that. Uh, also got to say big thank you to Waffling Taylors for having me on the podcast. I mentioned it last time, but, uh, they just released, I think it was a three part series. Um, that uh, I was guest on talking about old school and new school video games. And the second part in the series actually create, uh, contains a really cool intro, uh, with some, some music provided by yours truly. And, uh, yeah, it was really funny and awesome. You should go check it out. I need to download that. I absolutely do. I haven't listened to a podcast in a while. You got to match that sub, sub, sub. I do need to sub, 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 sub. All right. So, um, this this one was a bit of news. It has nothing to do with programming. This is more of just, hey, you know, be careful what you think you're getting for free. So there was a report that came out today. This one came from Forbes. I'm sure it's all over the web everywhere. But there are 8 million people that have apparently downloaded this free mobile jump VPN. 
because they think that they're going to be able to anonymously do stuff online. Well, guess what? They're shipping all of your personal data, location, uh, information, everything all over to China, which, you know, regardless of whether it's China or anywhere else, just be aware that, you know, typically not getting things for free, right? Well, it goes back to that old, uh, that old thing that if, if it's free, then you are the product. Right. Yeah. It's, that's what it is. Right. Um, so just, you know, be aware of the things that you download. I know. So being that the three of us work for a security company, I think we're probably more paranoid than most people. We were probably more paranoid than most people prior to joining a security company. Probably why we got to a security company. Right. Right. And, and now it's even worse. But like every time that I go to install an app on my phone on Android, I look at it and I'm like, you want what permissions? Nah. You know, yeah, there was a story that was kind of similar to this one. I want to say it was like early over the summer where Facebook, do you recall this story where Facebook was doing uh, something similar where they were giving out a VPN service no. and they were targeting uh, kids? Man, that's and, so ridiculous. And their defense was, oh, well, the parents had to give consent, but then the people who were like, you know, the back, some of the backlash was like, yeah, but some of the parents have no idea what they're signing up for. The kids are just like, hey, will you click okay? Right, or- click okay, accept, whatever. Yeah, man, when you start reading the fine print on just about any of this stuff, it dry, it's, it hurts my head. Like, I, so a, a complete tangent, because we're at the very beginning of the show, that's where you do tangents, <laughs> um, and throughout is, <laughs> you know, I've been re- researching security systems and stuff. And one of the things that drives me crazy, if you buy any of these security systems that have cameras on them, you're basically signing over that video, right? Like, you know that basically if you get a ring system or a nest or any of them, there are people on the other end that have access to that stuff and, you know, they're looking at it so that they can better their machine learning or they're looking at it so that they can find out facial detection. Like, again, just this kind of stuff drives me crazy. So, you know, the key point here is, especially with a lot of new technology, and you guys saw the FBI report about all the smart TVs that were just bought over the holidays. They're saying, hey, these things are probably spying on you. So, you know, I'll, I'll step off my paranoid um, soapbox now. But, yeah, just, you know, pay attention. Like, look at stuff. And you know why you're stepping off your paranoid soapbox? Because no. you're paranoid that it might break. <laughs> if it, well, that's just because I'm overweight, right? Oh. Like, I need to, I need to fix that. Wait a minute! Too. Now you're making it sound like I'm a jerk because of what I said. Oh no, that's no, no, not that's not I you. Meant. That's my own self conscious um, awareness, right? So, um, and then the uh, the next thing that I got here is, you know, I mentioned last time begrudgingly because I don't like telling people that I'm out of town and all that kind of stuff, but. I will be out of town. I'll be at NDC this London. This is your second notice. This is my that- <laughs> second time, right? Um, I mean, if I'm going to announce it, I at least want to be able to say hi to some people. So, um, you know, James again, Zach Braddy reached out. So, uh, you know, Jamie, like I'm definitely hoping to meet up with a lot of people that we've interacted with over the years, like super excited about it. So this is just messaging redundancy so that they absolutely will know that you will be out. Of I will be out there. Right. So again, January 31st is when my particular session is at, uh, 1140 in the morning. So, you know, come out, come out and, uh, learn about some streaming technologies with some SQL server and some Kafka and all that goodness. 
All right. Well, awesome. Uh, so I wanted to mention that we're going to be doing another book giveaway. So I just picked the winner uh, right now when I should have been paying attention to the recording. <laughs> so I'll be sending you a message. And uh, that's how we do over here in Cutting Blocks Land. So if you are interested in winning a copy of the book we're talking about today, Designing Data Intensive Applications, then go ahead and just uh, drop a comment there and uh, let us know what you uh, agree with, disagree with, or I don't know, like what you're eating for dinner over in the comments there. And uh you might want a book. Yeah. It, hey, you know, and it is awesome that people write and they're like, Hey, I love the show, whatever. I mean, you can butter us up. That's fine, but you don't have to, right? Like you, like you said, you can tell us what you're eating for dinner, whatever. I mean, we just like to see that people come up there and comment. So that's, that's excellent. Uh, and also I have a question for you guys. Uh-oh. So we've done several books. Where would you rank this one in terms of books that you've read that you enjoy? Like, what is this? It's number one for me now. Number one. Okay. I think. Really? What about you? And we haven't even got to the good parts, I feel like. I know. We I feel haven't. like this part's good, but it gets better. This is this is laying the groundwork for the, the cool stuff to come. And, and even the groundwork is really good. I think you guys might be ahead of me then because like I haven't gotten to anything that's making me think, you know, it's number one. Okay. So. What, I mean, what it's this? not a, it's, it's, let's be honest. This is no get. Oh my God. <laughs> See, I thought no, you were no. going to go with the art of unit testing. I figured that was your number one. Uh, n- n- no, there's um uh, a book right there to you. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it was like real world, real world machine learning. That one's yeah. a really fun one to read. Okay. Um, but we didn't do it on the show. I didn't. Do oh, it. I mean, you meant like which one we've done on the show? Ever. Show. Yeah. Well, in general, well, we didn't do the art of unit testing on the show. No, that's fair. Okay. Yeah. So, so where would this fall in all your books? Uh, I, like I said, I, it's, it's too early for me. I'm apparently not as far into it as you guys are. Cause you guys are way more excited. This is no I'm not saying I'm not enjoying the book. Don't yeah, get me no, wrong. No, it sounded, that sounded kind of negative after. No, no, not at all. I heard it. Not at all. No, this is number one for me too. Like I, I truly am enjoying the ever living heck out of this book. So, uh, yeah. Hey, don't curse on our show. Right. I did. I did not. So <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, what's your, what like is your current leader though? Yeah, oh, what's your man. very favorite book? Um, the Twilight series? No, that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really Hashtag wasn't. Team <laughs> it totally wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a little bit of truth in any lie. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. No. Um. No, honestly, I I don't know. I don't know. Is clean code in there? I guess. I mean, I mean, they're all up there, right? There's like good things about all of them, but none of them just jump out at you. Like this is the first one that I sat down and I'm reading it like a novel. Like I read it and I'm like, man, I really don't want to stop reading, but I'm really tired. <laughs> I need to. Yeah. <laughs> like another replication strategy. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I don't. I don't know that I ever think about books like that. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Maybe. All right. Okay, well, let's then. jump into I mean, this there one. there's a bunch of favorites. So, I don't know. Maybe that's not a fair statement, too. Because there's, like, a bunch of favorites, but I never, like, think of them as, like, you know, the one. I, I couldn't even do this with music if we I cried. was going to say, so this is like asking you what your favorite movie is or what your favorite album is. Like, yeah. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I get it. All right. Well, who's kicking us off here? Here. You want to do it, Joe? Uh, yeah. So, today we're talking about uh, scalability. And... um. Uh, 
they do a really good job of kind of breaking up how to talk about scalability. So we're going to kind of intro it a little bit, and then we're going to talk about some of the actual um, the numbers and parameters that you can look at to actually measure this. So it's uh, it's getting a little scientific and hard. Uh, <laughs> which I like it's kind of nice to actually have something you can measure so much of what we talk about in programming is it's um it's really hard to put kind of hard numbers on even when you're doing like static analysis or something it's hard to really say like something's truly better than it was before and so it's nice to to have this kind of here so that was I, I think a lot of fun and kind of refreshing to talk about in this chapter but uh, the reason I should say that we're even talking about scalability is because increased load is a common reason for the degradation of reliability, which is what we talked about last time. And scalability is the term <laughs> used to describe <laughs> systems ability to cope with increased load. So I've got a dog are squeaking a toy. Chewing here. on a squeaky toy while you or maybe you're just playing with a squeaky toy while you talk to us? Yeah, I'm gonna uh, give me a second here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. All right, so I I don't it didn't quite sound like he finished that thought, but scalability is a term used to describe a system's ability to cope with increased load yep so just to get that out there and uh it, it we have here that it can be tempting to say that something scales or doesn't scale but referring to a system as scalable really means how good your options are yep so we got a couple of questions here um, to ask of your system. If the system grows in any particular way with more data, more users, more usage, what are your options for coping with that or dealing with that growth? And how easy is it to add computing resources? And that's really what scalability boils down to. And all right, go ahead. You're back. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. I got the squirrel. <laughs> okay so we're safe for uh five minutes till we get another one so uh describing loads so um we we need to figure out some numbers to, in order to describe the load before we can truly answer any questions about it and load parameters are basically uh the the name that we're going to use to refer to the metrics that make the most sense for our system and uh it's essentially a measure of stress and i really want to kind of emphasize that load parameters are a measure of stress. They're not performance. So this doesn't tell you how fast things are doing. These are your load parameters. These are just the way you tell how much you're dealing with, essentially. So we're and talking about like number of requests and that kind of thing, right? Exactly. So if you're a web server, uh, requests per second tells you how much load you're under. If you're a database, uh, maybe your read-write read ratio is really important. Maybe just your number of reads per second or... Um, you know, maybe uh, if you're doing a video game, maybe like polygons shown on the screen at once or something like that kind of would uh, define basically how much stress your system is under. So load parameters, stressors, like that's the way I've kind of chosen to think about it. And so you even have a note up here also that says, hey, different parameters may matter more for your particular situation, right? So in one case, number of requests per second might be the load parameter that you care the most about, right? In another situation, it might be the um, the speed of reading from disk or writing to disk or, you know, the, there could be any number of things that are very specific to the situation you're dealing with. And you might even do like a ratio, like I mentioned, a read-write ratio or like if you do a cache, maybe you care about the hit-miss ratio in order to kind of define like, um, how many, how many responses am I missing the cash on? Because that kind of tells me a little bit about 
um, the way my application is behaving and how it's kind of going down the non-optimal path. And so this is a way of helping me describe the state and the stress that my application or system is under. Yeah, I have this old uh, thing that we used, that the three of us used. I don't know if you recall the formula, though, uh, that from a previous site that we worked on with like the number of concurrent users, like how we would try to calculate the number of concurrent users. I vaguely remember it, yeah. Do you remember it, Joe? Nope. So it it was, I I wrote it down like years ago because I was like, oh, that's an, an interesting way of thinking about it where we were keeping up with the, uh, it was the, the the metrics, the stressors, I guess, the, or the, uh, what'd you call it? The load, uh, ah, load parameters, parameters. There you go. Thank you. Um, we were looking at where like the average think time, you know, like how much time you would, a person might stay on a given page. So the average think time times whatever target page per second we wanted div- page per second divided by CPU times CPU. So average think time times, so I'm trying to like describe this math formula <laughs> because like part of it is a division. So like, what if I said, oh, okay, cause it's all commutative since it's multiplication. So, uh, page per second divided by CPU, that answer times average think time times CPU. And that would be our number of concurrent users that we were estimating that we could, we could handle. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Cause it's, it's really hard to tell if someone's an active user or not, like whether they close the browser or whatever. And like, there's some tricks for kind of maybe getting that info from like a, the client side. We can't really trust any of that stuff. So it's really hard to know if someone's truly active or not. And so you've got to kind of cobble this stuff together. Yeah. And the, and the reason why I bring that up is because, you know, Alan mentioned about the, uh, you know, the different parameters uh, for your system. Right. And so that's what, that's what we were trying to target then at that time. Right. But, you know, today to your point, it might be something else. Might, you might go after a different, uh, you know, metric man. Yeah. So take a minute to think about like the system that you're working on right now and, and think about what load parameters, what stressors are most important to you right now. And are you tracking them? Oh, and even then, like that was what we started with. Right. But I remember like we eventually started moving towards like how, how long it was taking for the entire thing to load. Right. Right. Do you remember that? I do. So like, you know, and it was no longer about like, Hey, how many concurrent users can we have hit a particular web server? It was, Hey, how fast can we just load the page? Period, right? Because well, I'm glad was- you brought that up. Because now we're kind of slipping into the other set of, of parameters here, numbers. So we talked about the stressors, which is like number of users, mm-hmm. um, you know, amount of traffic, like page loads mm-hmm. per minute, things like that. Now, when you start talking about performance, then the book is very careful to use the word performance numbers. It doesn't actually say parameters; it says performance numbers. And it kind of gives you uh, t- uh, two categories here, two ways to look at describing performance. One is how does performance change when you increase a load parameter without changing resources? So as, say, concurrent users go up, how does my performance numbers change? How do my performance numbers change? And the other way is how much do you need to increase your resources to maintain your current level of performance while increasing a load parameter. So I would say if you're talking about like response times or page load times, now we're talking about basically performance numbers. And in that case, we were talking about, uh, you know, as the number of concurrent users goes up, that's our load parameter. How is our page load time affected? Presumably it gets worse. 
Yeah. This is very much like the scientific method, right? Like change one parameter, see what that does, and then see what you can change on the other side, one parameter. And, and that way you can actually find out where the load is actually affecting your system and how you mitigate that load. But I guess the point, though, is that like, uh, you know, for that given site, we started out by caring about load and then over time we evolved to like, okay, we care more about like, let's go after performance and, and target that metric instead. Yep. Well, it's, you know, it's, we started, uh, it's we started with one cause we didn't know where to start with. Right. Right. So that seemed like a, a res- sorry to interrupt you, Joe, but that seemed like a, a reasonable thing. And then we, we, uh, transferred over. There's actually something pretty cool coming up in a little while that we'll, we'll sort of refer back to this. With the uh, whole starting with well, – yeah, there's a survey. But the uh, the assumptions part of this. So go ahead, Joe. I was going to say that uh, it's very important to note that the load parameters are a, a big part of your performance numbers because you can't really express performance numbers in a meaningful way without also including load parameters. So it doesn't make sense to say, oh, my page load time is 200 milliseconds. You kind of need to say it's 200 milliseconds when we have – X number of users or X number of queries or X number of otherwise. Otherwise, it's kind of like, what are you really describing? Are you describing how well your your site or application does and when it's optimally performing? Because who cares about that? I right. want to know how it works in production. I want to know how it works when it's getting beaten up. You know, I don't want to know how it runs in a lab. Right. Or how it runs with one user, right? Like one user on there doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in our case though we weren't we weren't talking the lab environment we were talking about like what the real world environment was doing but there there has to be some sort of load I, that determines it right because well doing yeah it in I, a vacuum, I, I get what you're saying though right? right like you know okay yeah you tell me like hey the production environment this is what the you know the current load time is of the page right but to joe's point it's like well if you don't know how many hit concurrent hits you're currently getting then what does that number really mean right so yeah but i'm trying to be fair to us too like hey you know like let's not uh let's not be too mean to ourselves here like you know we weren't doing this in a lab environment no i think we i think we used a lot of that stuff and we we backed into the load numbers based off you know actual performance so it's well i don't know that we actually even looked at the load at that you don't time. think so no very possible no okay so we were idiots <laughs> no no it's not bad it's just that the the book is pro- providing kind of like a formal structure here yeah say like when we're talking about scalability specifically scalability we're basically studying what we can do with our resources in order to improve our performance and in order to do that we have to understand what our stressors are and also the things that we care about measuring right. in so order to know how to scale so the point is is that knowing this now we would look at this different back then at that particular time, we we would just say like, okay, hey, this is what like, you know, w- the various tools that were available at the time, you know, uh, Page Insights and the Google Analytics and uh, I think like Pingdom had some tools, Page tools, you know, they could tell you like various speeds, whatnot. Like those were signals uh, that could say like, hey, you know, we're doing hits from around from these various servers from around the world. These are the average times that we're seeing, blah, 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 as well as numbers that we might see in like a dev tools, for example. Right. <clears throat> but today, the point that Joe is making is that we wouldn't just look at that one number because what does that one number mean? Right. 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 Although if uh, you don't have some we context were probably doing it for, to it. 
we're probably doing it for marketing reasons primarily, all right? We want to know, like, if we improve the performance, how well does that convert to actual sales? In this case, we're specifically focusing on, on scalability. So if we're saying, like, how many web servers do we need to, to run? Do we need to provision? You know, in a cloud world, that doesn't really make so much sense. But if we're talking specifically about, like, we're having a big sale come up next week, how much is that going to cost us in terms of hardware? That's when you really need to start understanding your, your load parameters and performance numbers when you're specifically trying to figure out like what that is going to mean for your resources and basically your costs. And those performance numbers, basically uh, they measure how well your response, uh, your system is responding. So we've got some examples here. Throughput is uh, something I've seen uh, used a lot and basically means like records processed per second. So this could be in terms of like real time streaming or it can be terms of a batch process. Like how long does it take to do a, a batch job with a million records in it? And response time is another one that we mentioned. Now uh, uh, that you mentioned, the book makes um, it's got kind of a cool side note here. I just I spent twice. I'm sorry, Holly. Uh, <laughs> the book has a cool little side note here about latency versus response time. And I didn't know. I never really thought about. It. I always kind of used them like interchangeably. And what they say here is that latency is how long a request is sitting idle, awaiting service. But not do anything. Either the database server or you know, application server that's trying to hit is too busy to handle it, or you know there's some sort of other process that's kind of tying it up. But latency is how long it's waiting idle. Response time is the total time it takes for the client, so the observer, to see the response, which includes any latency. But it just kind of gives you more of an idea about what your bottleneck is. I don't know that's necessarily material to like what we're kind of studying here. But I just thought it was a cool side note. Well, no, I think it is material, and we'll probably get into some of the reasons here uh, shortly. But it is because understanding what could cause your latency versus what can cause your response times to be high, that can actually change how you attack the problem, right, is basically what it boils down to. So Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And we're going to dive into uh, a bit more about these numbers here. Uh, But first... This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new frameworks, languages, patterns, and practices. But there's so many resources out there. Where should you go? Meet Educative.io. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment, allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your local environment. The courses are full of interactive exercises and playgrounds that are not only super visual, but more importantly, they're engaging. And the text-based courses allow you to easily skim the course back and forth like a book, so there's no need to scrub through hours of video just to get to the parts that you really want to focus in on. Yeah, and just when you thought that it couldn't get any better, they've now introduced subscriptions, so check this out. For a limited time, they're offering 50% off their new subscription price, and with that, once you subscribe at that price. You're locked in to that subscription price for as long as you remain a subscriber. So it's basically like you can head to educative.io slash coding box and get 20% off any single course, or you can subscribe and you're essentially getting 50% off of every course. And uh, I want to mention again, uh, we talked about a little bit on the show here, but um, grokking the system design interview has been one of the favorite courses I've ever taken uh, just of all time. It's been really great. 
And it really goes hand in hand with a lot of things that we're, uh, have been talking about lately with the, the book. So I definitely recommend you check that one out if you're looking for somebody to get started. Yep. So start your learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's educative.io, E-D-U-C-A-T-I-V-E dot I-O slash coding blocks and get 20% off any course. Well, it's that time of the show where we ask, hey, if you haven't already uh, left us a review, we would greatly appreciate it if you did, uh, as we said earlier. So you can head to www.codingblocks.net slash review where you can find some helpful links there. And with that, we will head into my favorite portion of the show, Survey Says. All right. This one's going to be fun. Uh, so let's see a few episodes back. We asked is DevOps a dot, 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 a job title hiring now or a job function. Get back to work. All right. So I don't remember who went first. So any mini Alan goes first. All right. Um, your Matt, name starts with an A, so that's that's does. probably that probably didn't help you. There we go. You, did you probably got that a lot growing up too, right? Well, no. So it was it was one of well, two extremes. Now Joe definitely went last. Well, well. So mine was A. So if we went by first name, I was right. there. But if it went by last names, I was typically in the end of the line, which Joe would have actually beat me. Yeah, he would have been right Joe, behind me. Joe got you there. Don't even try it. Right. So. I'm kind of I'm really excited to see what this one is because I was the the fence setter on this one. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think it could totally be a title. I think it's also a job function. I'm gonna go with people want to get paid for it, so let's call it a job title. Hiring now, and I'm gonna go. I have no confidence in my number here. I'm gonna say thirty five percent. I mean, there's only two options. <laughs> one's gonna be super heavy, and the other one's not. Okay. Yeah, well, I happen to know that uh, a job function won with a minimum of 51%. <laughs> Wait, you know that? I know based on the comments received oh, <laughs> on oh. the episode. Man, that's just – that's the passionate people that reach out. The, the more passive people – No, I, and I enjoy it. Yeah, I don't mean it sounded like – it was fun. It was uh, it was really funny and I heard some really good arguments for it. And so I really appreciate it. There was a lot of conversation about this there particular was. show. This it one- was really good in Slack. This one, this one struck a nerve. Yeah, this one was good. So <clears throat> I am curious, but I think only the, the hyper passionate reached out to you. The rest of them just went up here and voted. So that's why I'm going to win. All right. So, so Alan says job title 35%. Yep. Joe says job function with 51%. Yeah. He's going to lose by prices, right? Rules. No, he can't. I don't think he can. Anyways, go ahead. Okay. Do I need a drum roll? No, I don't need a drum roll. That's no, 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 good. No, no, no. That was a horrible request. I should have never asked for a drum roll. Here comes the helicopter. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, we just blew out some speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe wins. Really? Yeah, of course. By of how much? Of course, Joe. Come wins. on. What was the percent? Even even with the Price is Right rules thrown into it, Joe wins. Was it like fifty two percent? I'm even going to give the half part of this 82 and a half percent of our listeners Whoa. are correct <laughs> by thank, saying it's a job function thank you for all four of you that voted <laughs> what no 
Eighty-two percent, so you can figure out exactly how many people voted. Wow, that's impressive, man. That's uh, yeah. So most of our audience is right. Oh, hey, I'm good with that. I'm good. I'm good with that. But there are other people who said I want to get paid. So, right? Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So I can do I can do this survey, or I could give you a little bit of a joke. We need a joke. We'll do a joke. Okay. So, uh, Mike RG from Slack. <clears throat> if you've ever been in our Slack channel, you might have seen one or two uh, posts from him. He's very active in our Slack. Uh, he shared a tweet from my dad jokes uh, with me. Oh, actually, no. Was that a tweet or? Oh, yeah. It was a tweet that was sent via Reddit. Okay, I got it. What do Spanish programmers code in? C. Um, I don't know. Okay. The answer per the tweet is C++, but I would have accepted C, which is what Joe said. So, yes. Well done, Joe. Well awesome. done, sir. <laughs> All right. I got one. <laughs> All right. So, uh, for this episode's survey, we ask, with the new year coming, what kind of learning resolution do you plan on setting? And this, prepare yourself. This is a long one. So many options. I plan to learn dot, dot, dot. And your choices are a new language like Rust, Go, or LOL code. No, seriously, LOL code. Yeah, LOL code. Unfortunately, it's a thing. Yeah, there were some great ones. Oh, in the bizarre language too, like, uh, well, one that we, I don't know, brain, we'll just say brain F is one. If you haven't seen that one, uh, Arnold C was another one, but I was like, okay, we'll keep it, you know, with lol code. Um, <clears throat> or another option here, how about a new JavaScript framework like React or Angular, but probably ext.js. <laughs> Uh, infrastructure things like Docker or Kubernetes. Is the virtual PC still a thing? Uh, higher level concepts like machine learning and AI so I can prepare myself for Skynet. Or more about an OS, maybe a new OS, or just get better with the current one. Uh, a new database system, DB2, here I come. Uh, streaming data solutions like Kafka or Kinesis. Uh, and depending on which part of Long Island you're from, it might be Kafka <laughs> instead it of Kafka. It is Kafka. Yeah. Yep. Um, search solutions like Elastic or Azure, Azure ah, I can't even say it, Azure Search. I don't know. I need to Google it some more. <laughs> I was wondering if you could chuckle that, on That's that pretty good. Yep. Yeah. Uh, algorithms. I need to go back to basics. How does Bellman Ford work again? Or data structures, because I want to go way back to basics. <laughs> or uh, all about cloud services. I hear AWS is a thing. I like this one. Uh, this has got a good smattering of, of different approaches here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to go for like 7 out of 10. <laughs> Ooh, should I make it multiple choice? Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. why not? Wait, because then you see what people are truly interested in. They're not forced into a box. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes the results interesting. Yeah. All right, I'm in. I'm in. Uh, multiple choice. Ooh. Do you have to pick? Yeah, as many as you want. Yeah, 
but but be truthful, right? Like be truthful. Yeah, yeah. What are you actually going to well, I mean, on spending like, time on? Why would you lie on this? Like who are you really lying to? Like, well, what no, no, does no. it do? No, I guess what I'm saying is if you answer this, answer it in like, hey, I really do plan on looking at these. Not, hey, what am I interested in? Because I think most of us are interested in a little bit of everything. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like pick pick the ones yeah. that, that you think you'll actually go after. Right. I kind of I wonder, hmm, can we even do multiple choice? I'm sure we can. <laughs> yeah, so you should just go to the website and see what we figure out. No, don't email us. I was totally kidding. Oh, yeah, we can totally do multiple choice. Yeah. Done. All right, beautiful. Done. What a silly question, Michael. Of course there, you can do multiple there we choice. Go. Gosh. All right, fine. Let's let's get in. We, you know, we talked about uh, numbers like 35% and 51%, so let's talk about more numbers. Yeah, and so I really like the idea of them kind of referring to them as numbers, even though it was confusing. I really wanted to call them parameters for that kind of the symmetry there. But uh, the reason they call it numbers is because it's generally a set of numbers that you talk about. So when you talk about uh, response time, it doesn't make sense to really give just one number because there's actually a lot of numbers that are really important for different purposes. Things like the minimum response time, max, average, median – and percentile, which we'll talk a little bit about more about uh, percentile here in a minute. That's, uh, that's really interesting. But sometimes the outliers are really important. Like maybe the average is totally fine. Like the uh, example I, I liked here was uh, basically FPS. If you're playing a, a video game, maybe the average FPS is 59, which is nice and comfortable and, and uh, enjoyable. But if whenever you fight the boss, it drops down to 10 frames per second then that game is, people are going to be mad. It's going to be nearly unplayable and frustrating and a bad experience for everyone. So even though 99% of the time it's 60 or above, if it drops down to 10 when things matter, then that's a really big deal. And so that's why sometimes it makes more sense to look at different numbers and things like averages are much too simplistic. So it's common to get a suite of numbers here when we're talking about performance. I bet I bet um, Google Stadia is probably super interested in things like this right now or stadia. I can't remember what it's called. If you guys are aware of what that thing is. The, yeah. I've heard kind of mixed reviews, but uh, I want one <laughs> very mixed reviews. Like some people, people like you guys, you and outlaw who love your PC gaming are addicted to the high resolution and all that kind of stuff. And I've heard that it just, it doesn't, you don't get that same crispness, right? So I don't know, but, but this whole thing matters a lot to them, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, and now that we're talking about gaming, we, we, uh, totally should have brought this up in the news section Uh, that Halo is out on the PC now. And so now we're going to have to make it a regular thing that we have a coding blocks Halo night because we did that for the release night of Halo and had a blast and I think we're going to have to make that a regular thing. All right. Looks Literally. Like looks like I'm going to be buying it now. Yeah, I'm probably yes. more apt to play that than I am Rocket League. I loved Rocket League, but, I mean, Spoon killed us, right? Like, Spoon made it oh, not even fun. I'm, I get destroyed. <laughs> don't 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 get me wrong. Yeah, we'll get destroyed in Halo, too. I'm It'll fine, fine with that. For whatever reason, I don't mind dying, but I cannot stand not hitting that ball. Like, there's <laughs> there's something that kills me about that. Anyways. Awesome. Well, okay, we'll play Oddball then, and that'll make you feel better. <laughs> oh, I love Oddball. That was fun. All right. So, <laughs> All right. So uh, average may not make sense, just like we mentioned with the game example there, and it, that kind of applies to everything, too. And so uh, a lot of places, specifically the, the book mentions Amazon, 
uh, looks at percentiles. For example, you take like the median, which is, uh, you know, essentially the, the middle value of a set of numbers and you, you sort all the times and grab the one in the middle. Uh, then the median is known as the 50th percentile. So that's what, you know, half the people have worse and half the people have better. So someone like Amazon might say, we have uh, an objective of 200 millisecond response times for the 99th percentile, which means 99% of people have 200 milliseconds or better. And only 1% of the users or requests are going to be worse than that. Now, that's a very extreme number. I don't know how realistic that is, but it just kind of gives you an idea of how you can kind of use these different sliders and kind of take different stabs at things in order to, to adjust that. So maybe my FPS example, uh, we might have an objective of saying never drops below 30 and uh, FPS is above 50 for the 99th percentile. And that might be like a really good experience. And that's something that you can measure over time and graph. And if something drops below that, then you can throw an alert. Hey, and by the way, backing up real quick on this whole, the average may not be your best measure. If you want to see the typical response time of something, that's really important to know, right? Because you could be severely top loaded, um, on, you know, some really bad response times, right? Let's say that most of your response times are all a hundred milliseconds at the P50 or the 50th percentile, but your extreme bad ones were five minutes, right? Those are going to skew your results so that your average no longer tells you what a typical response time is. And that's why a lot of times you're looking at P50. That's why you sort the entire set and you say, Hey, this is middle of the road right here. You know, 50% of my users get better than a hundred millisecond response time. And the other 50 get worse, right? Like it's the middle of the road. So that's better for your typical rather than using average because average can absolutely be skewed just by large or super small numbers, right? Yeah, they say actually, yeah, and I totally agree with it, that average is almost never the number you want to use. Right. Because it's so easily skewed. Like uh, using example, uh, uh, Amazon again, the average salary for someone at Amazon is probably really good. I don't know. Call it uh, $300,000 a year, which is insane. But the median salary with all the warehouse workers and um, drivers and cafeteria workers and janitors and, and everything else might be more like, I don't know, $30,000 a year. Right. But it's so skewed by Jeff Bezos there at the top that it can wreck that whole number and make it essentially meaningless and, you know, maybe even harmful because it doesn't give you that information. So something like the percentile or the median is going to be much more useful to you. Yep. And what they say here is to find the outliers, typically, typically people are looking at the 95th, 99th, and 99.9th percentile. Really? That much? So here's the thing. If you go back to statistics, I mean, you guys probably remember this, right? Like there was one standard deviation and then two standard deviations away. I want to say this falls into the um, one standard deviation, right? Because I think two was like 87 point something and one was like 95. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can't remember exactly, but this, for whatever reason, it triggered all that. But but basically what we're saying is if, if you are looking at the 95th percentile, then that means that 95% of people are falling under whatever that, that if it's response time is your measure, then that most people are falling under that, right? And so that last 5% of people are kind of not getting the best the best experience. Yeah. So it would be, um, hmm, how to say this? The 0.1% would be on the far ends of the tail of that, uh, 
of right. that standard deviation. Right. That, w- that would be like the the 99.7, right? So 66% are going to fall within the first deviation. Okay. In a right? standard distribution. In a, In a standard distribution. distribution. We're yeah, talking yeah. about a bell curve, right? And then and then 95 will be percent will be within two standard deviations. There we go. And yep. then the the third third will be 99. in the 99.7%. Yeah. Yeah, so 68% was one standard deviation. Oh, sorry. I said 66. You're right. Yeah, 68. 68. Okay. 68. Cool. So, um, and, and I was going to bring up standard deviation too, because you were talking about like with the averages and everything and, uh, you know, going back to your Bezos example, because, um, like it, it, all the more reason why the average can be less meaningful to you is in the case where you do have skewed results. Mm-hmm. Like whether, whether that distribution is skewed either positively or negatively, because, um, you know, it's probably going to, the chances are it's going to be skewed one way or the other. Right. And, and so that's why that average is going to be, uh, not as misleading. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you have a really good distribution, an even distribution on both sides, average is probably in, in almost every case you shouldn't use it. Like, you know, yeah. If you take all the raw data, you're probably not going to have, your chances are going to be slim that you're going to have a, a normal distribution. Yep. Right. And so this next thing that I thought was really cool, and it's good to hear, and I think this is one of the reasons why I like the book so much, is they use a lot of concrete examples, right? And one of the things they mention is Amazon describes their response times in P999. So three nines, right? 99.9%. Because even though when you look at it like this, that only affects one in 1,000 people, one in 1,000 they care about it. And why? Because these slowest response times typically happen for the customers that have the most purchases. If you have a customer with the most purchases, what does that mean? They're probably a really valuable customer, right? So they are, they do care about that one in 1000 because they want those people to continue having a good experience on their site. Um, but the thing that's interesting is they, they talk about, Additionally, they don't care about four nines because trying to get those response time, those response times down for the four nines is hyper expensive, right? Like you're talking about one in 10,000 people experiences a slowdown. And now how do you even pinpoint that? Right? Like it might be an environmental thing. There could be a network router out somewhere in between here and, and that one person that had the problem out of 10,000 people, right? Like there's so many variables that, that are really difficult to solve for that it's probably just not worth spending the time and the money on that. And actually, uh, I wanted to give a shout out to Devin, Devin Goble over in the Slack channel as well. Like we even had a conversation when we talked about on last episode of hardware failures and we were talking about like, you know, S3 has 11 nines of uptime, not reliability, but uptime and, and things like that. Most companies aren't going to spend that time and money on that because to get to even four or five nines of reliability on your hardware is cost prohibitive. Yeah. It's cheaper to just buy new hardware than it is to try and make your software and everything so incredibly bulletproof that you'll never experience a hardware, a hardware failure. So, um, really interesting stuff. That's why those SLAs were always interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you remember like crazy SLAs, like, you know, even like it didn't have to be the nineties necessarily, but even in like the early two thousands, 
you know, and you'd have like four or five nines of reliability. And you're like, really? And they never, they were never true. <laughs> nope. Their nines are not my nines. You ever see that article? No. About, like just cause your service, your service page says green doesn't mean that I'm not down. Right. Yeah. Uh, and one other thing that I, I kind of skipped over here in the middle of these other things that I was talking about is response times and latencies and all that are really important because so many companies out there and being that we've all worked on e-commerce platforms, like it's a big deal, right? Like every increase in a response from a hundred milliseconds to 200 milliseconds, like there have been measured studies to where it's like, Hey, if you wait more than X number of milliseconds, a certain percentage of people leave. Right. And if it takes longer than a second, then people might even leave the search results or whatever. Like there have been tons of studies on basically people's patience and the user experience. And there's a massive drop off after you reach some threshold. Basically, we don't have any patience. Nobody has patience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But uh, you might. So, uh, I mean, I see you already crossed it in off in the show notes, but I, I apologize. No, because I was like uh, looking up something that. I I wanted to hear what the answer was about this uh the Amazon um the one in one thousand users. Oh, what about here? it? Because because yeah, with this, the answer about because the slowest response times would be the customers who purchase the most. Yeah. So and, they, yeah. But I I didn't understand like because uh, I was trying to find that in the book. I didn't remember. I couldn't remember it from the book. And I was like, wait a minute. I don't understand. Like just because it's the because they're do, they're running more queries against uh, yeah so basically they try to make sure that their response times are under 200 milliseconds i don't remember if that was the exact number but for p999 so 99.9% right. of users they want their response times to be under that threshold and the reason was is that 1000th person had the most orders or, or that that one person out of 1000 that had the slowdown theirs is going to load slower slower because they have more data to retrieve from their databases and their services and all that. And they wanted to make sure that at least those, uh, okay. those if thousand. Only, okay. So let me put this in a different, in different words. If you only had like one item in your cart, then your Order. cart would load yeah. fast. Right. But if you had 20 things in your cart, then, okay, fine. It's fine. If it, Alan, it's fine. If it loads a little bit slower. Okay. Right. Right. So there's, a, there's a name for it actually. It's a uh, the book says it's called uh, tail latency amplification. Yep. And the idea is basically uh, uh, the, yes. the, the bigger orders, the more intensive projects have more calls, so they're more likely to hit these conditions. So it's not necessarily that having a hundred throws you off a cliff all of a sudden, but just having that many more, that much more stuff going on, that many more service calls or whatever happening, you're more likely to hit those bad conditions. So just that alone is more likely to uh, cause problems. Yep. And that's why they make that uh, buy now button so easy. So you can just have like a bunch of single item purchases rather than one one purchase with 20 items. Yep. And they like to call out that the uh, percentiles are typically used in what are called SLOs or SLAs. So we mentioned SLAs. SLOs are service level objectives. That's what they're trying to target, right? SLAs are what you've contractually agreed to with whomever's using your products that, hey, we're going to have this amount of reliability or uptime or whatever. And there's a big difference, right? Like we we talked about – did we talk about reliability last time or are we going yep. to talk about – yeah, okay. So there's a difference between reliability and um, uptime. <laughs> like 
we won't get into the super nitty gritty details right now, but there are SLAs for different types of things, right? Like I said, S3, I want to say that they're, uh, what is it? Their uptime is 11 nines, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's never a failure in data, right? So, so the service is available, but your data may not be in a good state for whatever reason. So, you know, it, it's, there's definitely going to be some legalese there. Did, um, am I the only one though that when you heard SLO, you thought of ELO? <laughs> I did not think that. I don't no? even know what ELO nope. is. I do now. Electric Light Orchestra? Yes. Especially <laughs> this time of year. Oh, this is where the dude put out the thing with like Beethoven playing in the lights. No, 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 no. That's, um, that's Trans-Siberian Orchestra. No, 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 I'm not talking about the band. I'm talking about the thing that people put out in front of their house and it plays music and the lights play to it. Is that what we're talking about? No, apparently not. N- no, okay, I gotta look Electric Light Orchestra is a is a band. Oh, okay. No, I didn't. ELO. No, had not from like this. the 70s. Oh, okay. That's why. I, I mean, I'm a I'm a 2000s kid. I don't know. Oh, right, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, sure. Right. I should have I should have said Bieber. Yes. There we go. And, okay. Yeah. Now you got it. Bieber. There we go. I'm on board. <laughs> uh. All right. All right. So they mentioned uh, queuing delays are a big part of response times in the higher percentiles. And that kind of has to do with uh, these calls kind of stack up in each other. So if like one goes a little off, they can kind of cascade and uh, add up. And services, servers rather can only process a finite amount of things in parallel. And the rest of the, the requests are basically queued or you know, they'll have some sort of pool going on. And what that means is that a relatively small number of requests could be responsible for slowing many things down. So you know, if you have one request out of a hundred that goes poorly and it's whenever a certain you know amount of conditions kind of happens as your service gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you get more and more users that that condition is more likely to hit. And you've got a, I don't know, a thread pool of 20 or something that which is tiny, but um, you, you have 20, then the first time it hits, it gets stuck a little longer, keeps adding up. Next thing you know, you've got 20 of these slow responses uh, in there clogging the pipes. Well, even worse so, than that, Everything, if it was the first thing to hit the queue, it's slowing down everything that's waiting behind it, right? And that's what they call head of the line blocking. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so that first slow one came in, and then let's say a hundred requests came in behind it. Those things may require almost no work, but they're waiting on that first one to finish. And so that's where the whole latency versus response time stuff comes in, right? So the latency is how fast did this thing actually service the request? Well, they're all sitting there waiting for that first slow thing to to actually finish what it's doing before they can even start. So. The best way to visualize the head of line blocking is just think about your your local DMV or your post office because <laughs> we've all been in that situation where you're like, oh, come on already. Uh, the sloth. <laughs> yeah. Zootopia. That might be one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Uh, so for this reason, it's important to make sure that you're measuring client side response times to make sure that you're getting the full picture. Cause that basically gives you that kind of end to end number. And so I think that's, that's a, a great point. So, you know, we talked about how load parameters may be different for you and your organization, things that matter for you. Uh, same thing goes here, but different performance numbers may matter for you. But in most cases, you're going to want something that represents the kind of end to end user experience. This this next piece was really interesting to me. I don't think it was anything I'd ever thought about or 
I don't even know that I'd done it wrong or right in the past, but they were saying, Hey, if you're doing load testing, you need to make sure that when you're sending requests, you're not waiting for the other one to come back in every situation, right? Because how are you going to test out this head of the line blocking if you're always waiting for the response to come back? So while you send out requests, you don't need to be waiting. You need to send more requests so that you can also try and trigger this thing to where things start queuing up and your wait times start growing for that reason. And I've heard people argue that low tests are often uh, not accurate or, or not very good because they're not you know, in this case, we're trying to make it more realistic, but in some cases, like it's just checking out a thousand times back to back and it's not really indicative of real human behavior. So we shouldn't pay much attention to results. But I think that even though it is different, obviously, you know, you can't really mimic true, accurate, you know, user behavior. I don't think that's a reason to discard the results because sometimes you're going to find things in load testing that you're coincidentally not hitting in production yet. And so that may come to a head one day. And so I think those results are still really good. And of course you can have, you know, better or worse load testing results, but, um, I think it's still, uh, it's, it can be tempting sometimes to throw results that you don't like or kind of write them off because, you know, it's easy. I think you gotta be really careful with that because you can hit things like head of the line blocking easier sometimes when you're load testing than when you've got real production traffic. Yeah, this this reminds me of that saying, don't let perfect get in the way of good, right? Like a lot of times as developers, we, <laughs> I mean, we do it all the time uh, and, and everybody we know that are passionate about development, like somebody will want to introduce something new and, and everybody's got 5 million reasons why you shouldn't do it. And, and in reality, you don't even know until you try it, right? Like, so don't say, well, I'm not going to load test because it's not perfect. It will get you some information, right? It may not be the complete picture, but some information is more than likely better than none, right? At least in my Yeah, logging and monitoring, especially reading the book, kind of emphasizes just how important that is and how many good decisions you can make and, and how scary it is to not know how things are going in your application or system. Yep. Uh, so for applications that make multiple service calls to complete like a, a single screen or a page, slow response times become particularly critical because uh, the user experience is not good. At, even if you're just waiting for one small part of it, sometimes that's enough to make the thing just not usable totally. So the slowest defender can ultimately determine the user experience. I think um, this is, this has gotten a little bit better in um, recent years with like things like microservices and people splitting things up. And so, you know, even if my cart indicator is still spinning, I can still search. And that was less common a few years ago. And things are getting better. But uh, overall, as an end user, I've been happier with more microservice type actions. Yeah, but that uh, doesn't mean that it couldn't still be that one microservice bring the whole thing down, right? Like, right. If yeah, authentication is, is your microservice in it yeah. decides to tank for whatever reason, you know, head of line blocking or whatever. Yep. Uh, you know, then yeah, everything else could go down. Yeah. The other 50 requests on the page came back quick, but that one didn't, you can't do anything right. Like yep. it, it, it really depends on which one it is. Um, it, it does bring to mind though. You guys have heard of Svelte, um, JavaScript. Yeah. yeah the incredibly disappearing framework. Yeah. So, um, sidebar. Uh, so, it, <laughs> it's it's interesting because it's actually made to solve this particular problem because I know you guys have gone to websites like, I mean, any news website, CNN, Fox, any of them. Uh, sports sites are notoriously bad about this. NFL, NBA.com, all those. 
you go and you load a page and you look at all the requests that are hitting off that page, especially for ads and everything else. Like by the time it's done, it's served up 300 requests, right? Svelte, the whole reason it was developed, it was actually developed by a guy that is a an online journalist or something. I, I, I don't want to, to say it completely wrong, but he basically wrote articles and he would have to embed images and that kind of stuff. And the problem that he ran into was, you know, sometimes these frameworks, like let's say that you did it in React or you did it in Angular. If you just had an article that needed to be plopped on a page or you had an ad that needed to be plopped on the page, he didn't want an entire framework to load just to plop that one, you know, rack module on there or that one angular module. So like what Joe said, it's sort of a disappearing framework so that it's a compile time type thing, right? You build your stuff. It's sort of, so you make the content that you want to show up on this news site or whatever. When you build it, it sort of does tree shaking of its own and it builds in exactly what it needs and only what it needs. And then that way you can embed that on the page and there's no frameworks being loaded. It's just the content and whatever little script pieces it needs. So it's really interesting. Um, but it reminded me of this simply because, you know, it's helping solve some of those problems. Like, especially, like I said, new sites are just horrendous at this kind of thing. And this was designed to fix some of those problems. Oh, yeah, okay. I, yeah, I, I want to say the times, but I'm, <clears throat> I can't find it. Say what? I thought it worked for the times or something, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, I read some stuff about it too. It kind of reminded me of like scaffolding. So if you've got these tools while you're building it, then they kind of, uh, ultimately churn out the, the, just the minimum amount of kind of static code needed to run, which kind of reminded me of some James Sacky stuff I had been, uh, reading about at the time. You know, does, does being in tech sometimes just make you feel like, you're not in tech. Like, like how long has this thing been around? I haven't heard about this yet. And now you're talking like, you're both talking about like, Oh yeah, no, I've known about this for like 18,000 years. How do you not already know about it? <laughs> like I, I learned this thing. Like when I was a child, I don't even remember how I came across it. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that I think people will take to extremes because that's what we do, right? Like, Oh, drop everything. Don't do react anymore. Do svelte, right? Oh, don't do svelte. Do this. I think it's just like many things. And what this book is really about is you choose the right tool for the job. If you have something that you need to be ultra lightweight because you need to make sure that, you know, whatever page is loading on something that you don't control, you want it to be as static and lightweight as possible. It's a great tool for it. Would you build an entire site with this? I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, because React and Angular buy you some really nice stuff. So I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's too much to know ultimately. So like, no matter what, there's going to be like a tons of things you've never heard of things that you may have heard of and have no real experience with. And you probably have all wrong. <laughs> oh, dude, I saw something about AWS uh, because, you know, there's, there's a big battle between AWS and Azure and Google to try and be the, the cloud of all clouds. Right. They just released something like 170 some odd new services. I saw some article the other day, like, a hundred and okay. I'm let's say, let's say that I read that wrong, right? And let's say that it was that seventeen. It's not new services. All right. Let's just say they have a hundred and seventy-five total services. Like, how do you grok all that? Well, well, we were time. We I think it was the last episode, right? That we were we were, or at least I was reminiscing about the days of the AWS console, where like you know it used to be when you would log into the console, like you saw 
all of the services that yes. were available for you in one screen. Now you don't. You see, like, here's the last six that you use. Anything else you got to go search for. Yeah. It, it's actually, I think, I think I said it wrong. I think it might be 170. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Amazon's cloud business has now has over 175 different services for customers to use. That's up from more than a hundred services two years ago and 140 last year. So, I mean, the thing is, don't get me wrong. Like, thank you for doing this because I'm sure that they're adding value, but oh my God, how do you keep up with it? Well, I mean, it's just basically like an operating system, right? Like they're just expanding the capabilities of the operating system more and more and getting more and more granular with it. So it's just going to, and it'll keep going. And they're wrapping more and more software, right? Like really, if when you boil down what any of these cloud services are, they take a lot of, probably in a lot of cases, open source software, and then they wrap it to make it easy to use, right? Well, not it might not even be software, though. It might just be like concepts, like uh, DNS, point. for example, good Route point. 53. Yep, good point. Right? Was was just like, you know, a, a, a DNS service. And that's why I'm saying, like, you know, if you think about, like, your operating system and all the little things that it does, like, you could make a similar kind of statement about an operating system, right? Like, the, the things that they just keep adding into it, right? Right. Like, go, getting the weather for your your area used to be something that you would either have a separate app for or right. you would go to a separate web page. Now it's just built into the operating system that if it knows where you are, there's an, a built-in app for that. And now there's notifications. There's, right. Yeah, there's all kinds. Of, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I guess the thing is, it, it's just like, man, this stuff is all growing out of control. Like you said, is there any time you're a developer and you're like, oh my God, like I must be way far behind everybody else. But at the yeah, same time, I didn't know about Svelte. So yeah, thanks yeah, for bringing that up again. Svelte, there you go. But <laughs> I didn't know about 175 services. And the funny part is, I'm in AWS and I click something and I see the scroll bar like 20 miles long, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah I don't, I don't even know what I'm looking for. So, you know, it, it is uh, crazy. Anyways, back to this stuff. Um, so we talked about a little while ago this whole notion of compounding slow requests that's called as the, the tail latency amplification, right? So as some of these things slow down on the, on the tail end of it, it actually slows everything down because it's amplifying as more requests queue up and all that. It sounds like it should be finance related the way you said that compounding slow requests. (laughs) It is with tail latency amplification. Well, I was thinking of like, I was making a reference to like compounding interest was what I was thinking when you said it. Yes. Annuities. That's what these are. Okay. <laughs> uh, next thing I mentioned is that monitoring response times can actually be a little bit dangerous because the monitoring itself can be a little bit expensive and have an effect on the, the ultimate uh, like resource utilization. I love this. Uh, I love this one. Yeah, observing uh, observing the behavior can change it. Right? Like, uh, you ever look at uh, how much stuff? Um, or I guess you don't. I don't really know how to look at it, but I've always wondered kind of with Google Analytics running on every page tracking. Where my mouse, you know, goes, heat maps, not just Google Analytics, but a lot of services now track like every little thing you do, mm-hmm. uh, where you look, like where your eyeballs are looking on the page. And, uh, so that stuff has a very real cost. And so it may be worth, uh, not necessarily tracking everything and only doing, you know, a little bit or every tracking, tracking every hundredth re- request or something like that. And so it's worth considering if you think that your, uh, your monitoring is going to be that expensive and have that profound of an impact. Have you guys ever been in a situation where you're like, all right, I need, I need to add some logging to this application. So oh, I can yeah. like figure out what's going on. 
what's going on, right? So obviously I don't have enough logging because I, I can't I can't figure out what's going on. So then you're like, okay, add some logging, 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 add some logging. And then you're like, you got to run your app. You're like, okay, I, I think now I can figure out where it's going. And then you're like, okay, let's run it again. Wait, why is it so slow? <laughs> what just <Yeah>. happened? <laughs> yeah. Uh, like definitely. you go from one extreme to the other extreme. But you is, found that problem. Yeah. Well, or that or the water never boiled because you were looking at it. Right. Yeah, that's right. true too. I, so there is one thing here that's really interesting is they mentioned like, so the amount of logging, it can be problematic, not just because you've already got so much. So it could actually inadvertently impact the performance of your application. Right. But the whole thing is if you're trying to do aggregates every minute, let's say, and you're doing it on all the data, right? And you have, I don't know, think about like somebody like an Amazon at scale, right? Like how many, I forget, they lose so many millions of dollars per second that they're down, right? So if you imagine the amount of traffic that is, and if you're logging all that and you're trying to do some sort of aggregation to say, you know, these were the response times for the last 10 million events that happened in the past minute you know, you're going to be crashing servers. Like you can't keep up with that amount of data. And that's why he was saying is be selective, right? Like figure out another algorithm to do it. And there's a few of them that are listed here. Yeah. I want to highlight that too, because um, keeping an average, for example, is actually really easy. And that's probably why it's so common. If you need to know the average, you need to know how many number, how many samples you've taken and you need to know the sum. So there's two numbers to track there. Every time you get a new sample, you increment the sample count and you uh, add to the sum. Getting min and max, also very cheap. You want to know the median, then the naive way to do it is to just keep track of every sample you've ever taken and then grab the one in the middle. And so, like Alan said, there's a couple of algorithms that kind of get around that by making use of better uh, data structures or kind of um, compressing the data a little bit. So we've got here uh, forward decay, T-digest, and HDR uh, histogram. Those are all above my head, but I know enough about trying to keep medians to know that uh, it can be a pretty big pain in the butt, actually. And not even just medians, I should say percentiles. Yep. And this is one thing that's important, and we should all know this as, as people who have done math. Averaging percentiles makes no sense, right? Because a percentile of a set of 10,000 and trying to average it with a percentile of a set of five – it doesn't make sense. They don't work. So what they point out here, and I don't think I even knew this, by the way. I knew that you couldn't do it that way, but I didn't know this. Um, so averaging percentiles is meaningless. Rather, you need to add the histograms. So that sounds cool. I've never done it. I don't even know how you do it. But it's something I'll probably look into because that's really interesting. It's kind of almost like uh, bucketizing, I think. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I haven't really looked into them, but that's how I imagine is they kind of like divide things up into certain segments in order to kind of measure them. Well, I remember reading an, a white paper a while back um, that was related to uh, a machine learning process that Amazon was using where they were doing mini batches in order to be able to do like real time. They were trying to get closer to real time uh, uh, inference. And um, so, but basically the way you could think about the mini batches is it was almost like taking averages of averages kind of situation. Like, you know, because you, because to your point about like, well, you can't process all of the data. Like, I, did you even give a number, Alan? I don't think you did, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, you were just saying like, Hey, if you're like a size of Amazon and you're trying to do these aggregates, you like, you can't do this across all the data in real time. No, you can't. 
but you could take like, okay, hey, here's a batch of whatever that amount of data is, get some average from it. Okay, now we can go to the next data, next batch, get some average from it. We can take those two averages together, you know, and you can keep going like that. But I mean, I, I'm I'm grossly some oversimplifying it because, you know, again, the particular white paper was more about machine learning, not necessarily about, you know, uh, log metrics or whatever, you know, or uh, related to, uh, you know, your application's performance, but. It's all good stuff. Yeah, great time to be a dev in top security. <laughs> There's so, <laughs> so much to learn and so much to uh, try and know. Oh, for sure, for sure. So we talked a little bit about scalability. We talked about uh, the ways to describe load. And we kind of talked about load parameters being your stressors. We talked about how to measure performance by using performance numbers. So now we're going to talk about what you do to actually cope with load. Basically, how we retain good performance when our load increases. You got an example here. An application that was designed for a 1,000 concurrent users is probably not going to handle an order of magnitude jump up to 10,000 concurrent users without any changes. And so it's often necessary to kind of rethink your architecture a little bit every time your load is significantly increased. So and as we've talked, go ahead. Nope. All you No. So that was one thing that I thought was really interesting is they said, Hey, every time there's an order of magnitude increase, you probably have to rethink your architecture. And they said, maybe even more than that. Right. So even in stepwise increases, right. Maybe you designed it to work for a thousand users and you get to 1500 and it just tanks. So that's not an order of magnitude. Well, I mean, I guess in that case it maybe is, but, but you see what I'm saying, right? Like it's not massively bigger, but that little bit puts you over the top of what is acceptable. And so you might even have to rethink there. And then you have to rethink again when you get to 3000, et cetera. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. So if you can say, like, we've got a big sale coming up and we expect 10 times more traffic, then you know trouble time. Like, that's like a threshold that's known for having this kind of big, bad jump. So you're probably going to need some additional hardware, uh, either scaling up to basically, you know, add more resource, resources to an individual machine or scaling out by adding more machines. And so if someone tells you, something in marketing, we're having a big, huge Black Friday sale, we can expect 100 times or more our normal traffic whoa nelly at that point i i can't even imagine making that big of a jump without doing some serious testing it's pretty hard to spitball that i would imagine dude so you guys know that i'm a huge fan of costco i think joe you are too right <laughs> i i enjoy it not as much as you though hey man that's, i don't know of anybody that enjoys costco as much as that hey our buddy that's, stewart that's not even possible our buddy stewart might no. like it as much if no. not more than i do but but uh, no. here's the thing so Costco sent out a Black Friday email on, you know, Black Friday morning. And as I do, I, I clicked that email and the entire site died. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. Well, how good was this sale? Like, it, like, apparently, I don't know. I, it couldn't have been that good because nobody could get to it. Like, seriously, all day long, you could not log in. And if you know anything about Costco.com, you can't see the prices unless you log in because it's a member only thing. Couldn't log in all day. And and I tried many times because I like Costco. <laughs> what did I tell you about authentication service? <laughs> yep. Your microservice is the authentication that dies. Yep. So this whole scale, this whole load thing is exactly what you're talking about. Um, You guys know Woot? You ever? So Woot.com, oh, yeah. they used to have Woot-offs, right? And anytime somebody would say something about a Woot-off, like everybody would be over there clicking refresh and their servers would die. Every single time, right? Like everybody wanted that bag of crap that you could get on a Woot off. 
it never happened because the page would never load. So, man, I haven't thought about Woot in forever. Right? Have you guys went there? And I, yeah, me too. And I'm like, oh, I actually want that. <laughs> See? So, you look at the sushi shirt. The what? <laughs> so, this is a funny sushi shirt. It's Godzilla eating sushi. That uh, I'm like, ooh. Oh, uh, no. No, this was like a, an Under Armour shirt that I just love. Oh. Uh. See? Oh, but I do see the Godzilla one, yeah. I just brought some joy back into your lives. So, so yeah. Okay, you know, episode's over. I got to shop here. Hold on. Yeah this this whole um. Hey, wait. Who 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 knocked off these these shag boxes? We haven't talked about these yet. Um. So, yeah. It, go ahead and knock I, I was just getting back to the whole thing that you know, being prepared for this is way harder than you think, right? Like Costco.com's been around for a minute. Woot.com's been around for a minute. Like. This is still not a super simple problem to solve. So that said, the things that were marked off that we hadn't actually talked about yet, scaling up. Um, typically, when we talk about scaling, you hear of two different ways. There's scaling up and there's scaling out. And we've talked about this in the past before. But scaling up is adding more hardware resources to a single machine to handle additional load. So more memory, more CPU, more whatever, right? That's what that is. Scaling out is, hey... It's way cheaper to add more machines. So just add, uh, we call them commodity hardware, right? And all commodity meant was it wasn't like the old Sun, Spark, or Risk systems or anything like that. It was, you just go buy a, a piece of hardware off the shelf from Dell or whomever else. You throw it in your rack and you're good to go. So that's you scaling go from up. like 16 megabytes of RAM, gigabytes of RAM to 32 gigabytes of RAM. is a lot cheaper than buying a whole new laptop. Yeah. Right? So that's the case where scaling up, you can get much better performance for much cheaper than scaling out. But there's going to come to a point as you try to go up to, I don't know, 128 gigs of RAM, where it's definitely going to be cheaper to buy a whole other laptop. Yep. And so that's kind of the deal there is that scaling up essentially has a limit. It it definitely has a physical limit in terms of like, you know, physics and electrons and how fast you can get. But also just in terms of pricing, like it's a, it gets to be really expensive at the top end of that curve while scaling out should be pretty close to a linear scaling of price. So, you know, a laptop costs 1000 bucks. Three laptops cost $3,000. Three times your RAM is not going to cost three times as much. Right. But let's also say, though, when we talk about scaling out costing you just that much, we're talking about hardware costs, right? Because right. now you're going to start incurring other costs. Yeah, like, you know, if you only wanted to have, I don't know, three gigs of RAM, Right. right? That's not a big deal. And going from three gigs to six gigs of RAM isn't going to be a big deal. If you need to have a machine that can have, I don't know, 256 terabytes of RAM, the machine alone that could support, you know, an insane amount of RAM is already going to start off expensive, let alone the RAM for it. Yeah. I mean, I've looked at even for desktop builds, you know, hey, I want to put 128 gigs in this. Dude, you start running in some cash because now you're doubling the size of the chips on the single memory sticks and like the price doesn't scale literally, right? Like going from 64 gig to 128 gig isn't twice the price. It's right. four, five times the price in many cases. And that's what we're talking about. There's that threshold that once you step over it, it's like, okay, you know, now we're getting into exp expensive territory. Yeah. We, we have uh, from our last episodes show notes uh the statement where we said as time has marched on single machine resiliency has been deprioritized in favor of elasticity i.e the ability to scale up or down more machines which yep. 
I guess now we should really say scale out. Scale out, yeah. Yeah. Hey, and, yeah, I'm bad about that. And and to move it on here, so scaling up versus scaling out, one is not necessarily better than the other. And we should talk about why now. Because if we're talking about the cloud world, everybody's like, ah, scale out, right? But there are situations where that doesn't make sense. And they, and they point it out in the book, and they do a beautiful job of it. Scaling up can be much simpler and easier to maintain. But there is a limit to the power available on a single machine, as well as the cost ramifications of creating an uber-powerful single machine. So think about your traditional RDBMSs, right? Uh, SQL Server, Oracle, that kind of stuff. Like, it's really easy to manage one box, right? And if you can get all the power in that one box, it sure does make your life a whole lot easier than if you're trying to manage your, manage some sort of cluster with failover and all that kind of stuff, Right. Scaling out can be much cheaper in hardware costs, but the cost, but this cost starts going up in developer time and maintenance because you got to keep this infrastructure running. There's communication between them. There's, there's balancing and complexity, latency. Yeah. Like there's so many other things that you get there. So now you're truly balancing out like where you're spending your money and your time and your effort. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. But the hope though. Huh, man, I hate to say that one. Yeah, I mean, I get where the book is coming from with the one is not necessarily better. I get that, especially depending on like what your needs are, right? Yes. Like, like we often joke about Alan wanting to build something that can support a billion users from day one as he's still like proof of concepting this thing, right? Yeah. So, okay, in that case, yeah, I get it, scaling up, right? But the hope though is that once you do have your solution that can scale out, that there is a economy of scale there that like once you do figure out that complexity and how to handle that that infrastructure that you know that adding that uh that next machine to the configuration isn't going to cost you uh you know that much more effort right does, yeah. that, does that make sense like it does like i guess okay uh, i guess what i'm trying to say here is like if you were to picture the curve right that like it starts out really steep in the beginning, but then as time goes on down the line, like the curve gets closer to zero. It depends right? on your needs though, right? Like, or at least I, that's the hope. So I've brought this up in the past, right? It, and I think we have a link in and I'll put it in the show notes here too, but the stack exchange, or I think they renamed themselves again uh, to stack overflow, but their, their architecture diagram, mm-hmm. if you look at it, they have one SQL server. Right. All right. If, 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 if you want to really be realistic, they have two, but it's just for high availability, right? Like if one goes down, the other one's still up. So they've decided, Hey, we only need one of these things, but then we have other things backing it, like a Redis cache and that kind of stuff, right? So again, it just depends on what you need. And we say that so many times on this show, right? Like there's no perfect answer to a lot of things. And there's not here either. So rather than picking scale out over scale up, pick the one that best suits your needs. Stack Overflow maintains uh, a pretty beefy SQL server, but then they back that with other services that allow the site to run extremely fast, right? Yeah, I'll have a link to this in the in the show notes. But yeah, they do um, 1.3 billion page views per month. And they have, uh, where was it? Four SQL servers. Uh, organized as two clusters. Each has a 
one and a half terabytes of RAM with a database size of, well, let me rephrase that. They have four SQL servers, but two of them are for Stack Overflow. The other two are for Stack Exchange, Careers, and Meta. So the the, C, the Stack Overflow one alone is one and a half terabytes of RAM, 2.8 terabyte database size, at least as of the time of this, right? 4% CPU usage. That's crazy. It peaks peak. at 15%. Yes. Yeah, that, that part's crazy. And they get... 528 million queries per day. That's unbelievable. And their peak is 11,000 queries a second. Yeah. So again, this is one box, right? Now, granted, 1.5 terabytes of RAM yeah. probably costs as much as maybe some houses out there, right? Like, let's not downplay that. But this is a situation where they said, hey, let's scale up the hardware here. Because scaling this this infrastructure out is going to be very difficult, right? So, again, like in Stack Overflow, if you listen to the show, you probably have been there a time or two. So, yeah, I mean, you got to know the use case. So I was looking at how much 1.5 terabytes of RAM will cost you. How much is it? Is that going to be in our next uh, show Call for notes? Pricing. <laughs> Call for pricing. If you got to ask, that, that'll be in the exactly. that'll be in the next uh, uh, shopping spree episode. Oh, one and a half terabytes of RAM, dude. But I'm not going to get it unless it's got LEDs on it. it. <laughs> in, in your server. <laughs> uh, uh. Oh man, oh, I mean, like I want my server to you know be blingy. Uh, That's an extra fifty thousand for the, the bling. Right, right. Well, I bet I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Not not at that level. Um, so yeah, the next thing we have is there's also what's called elasticity, um, and this is basically when a when systems can resize on their own, you know, based off some sort of metrics. Right, like uh, you set something up, say, hey, if I see sixty percent CPU utilization hit, then get, add another add another box, right, and then distribute the load. And when it goes down, then it automatically shrinks back down. And that's why it's called elastic, right? Just like, uh, I don't know, uh, jogging pants or something, right? Like as you get fatter, they grow. As you get shorter, they they shrink. Hey, let's keep it real. (laughs) I I was going to bring up like a stretch Armstrong. Okay. There's that too. That might be an older reference there. Yeah. I don't like your, well, I guess your, your waistband reference though would be kind of fitting considering we just got past uh, Thanksgiving. We did. Here in the States. Yes. People are shrinking back down now, hopefully. Yeah. Or they will be in January when everybody stops eating for a week or two. Well, no, January you shrink back down because for the first two weeks you join the gym. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. I'm going to skip lunch today. Um, so yeah, again, that all typically happens with some sort of criteria. Now there are, systems where people manually do these things, right? Like, oh man, <laughs> Black Friday just hit. We need to add another server. Right? Or maybe you just, per- you, you know that because of Black Friday's coming, you anticipate the need. So you're like, okay, let's go ahead and, and scale up a little bit extra, right? So that, because there might be, um, we, we've talked about this as it relates to like uh, Lambda and Azure functions and things like that. Like just the cost the latency that you might hit for the spin up time for that service. Right. So because you might anticipate a big, in the case of like an e-commerce thing with black Friday, because you might anticipate that extra load, you could go ahead and scale that up in advance. Yep. 
And this reminds me of, of cloud services. Like I think a lot of times when people think about cloud services and AWS, Azure, Google, whatever, they think, oh, it automatically does everything for me, right? So I can just turn on this little elastic button and say auto size. I'll give it some thresholds, but um, came across a, a use case that actually demonstrates this very well. So in Amazon, there's AWS Kinesis and there's Kinesis Firehose and this is for loading data into uh, the cloud, usually going into an S3 bucket or maybe somewhere else. But the interesting thing is if you use Firehose, it sizes for you. You don't ever have to worry about it, right? It is fully elastic. If you send it way too much data, it will grow to meet your needs. If you use Kinesis itself, you actually have to plan for the load. So it's still very much a manual person having to go in there and make decisions on, you know, how many partitions do I have? How much data am I pushing in? So even though they're both basically services that do essentially the same thing, one's managed by you and the other one's managed by the framework itself. I, I don't know why this just came to mind, but you were talking about Amazon's 175 um, services. Maybe it was 175,000 services. <laughs> <laughs> um but have you heard of, I don't know if we talked about this. Have you heard of AWS Snowmobile? Yes. Have no. you, Joe? So um, your comment about Firehose uh, in Kinesis is what, what made me think about it because you're talking about like putting in a bunch of data. So they have, have a service called AWS Snowmobile where like imagine if you have a lot of data that you want to load into AWS. So like a gigabyte. <clears throat> Let's let's say let's say <laughs> exabytes. Totally right, right, right. Petabytes, exabytes. Yeah. A lot of data. Then what they will do is they will drive a truck to you, right? And this is basically like a data center on wheels. They will drive it to you, uh, connect it to your network and your power, and you can transfer your data to the truck, and then they will drive it back to an AWS data center and make it available for you on the network. Pretty cool. How it many hundreds insane. of dollars do you have to spend per month to I, get them to do that? I think that's a call for pricing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah, you could transfer a hundred petabytes per snowmobile. Man, that's wow. a lot of data, right? But th- I mean, that's cool. That's that's really really cool. So, getting back to this with the whole auto elastic versus a person doing it. Doing it manually might actually be simpler and it could protect you from a big bill, right? Like uh, if you had some things in their auto scale and you didn't expect Black Friday for you to sell your widget, you know, a billion times, uh, you might not have been prepared for that bill that's going to come your way when it scaled up 100 servers for you, right? So doing it manually can actually save some of that. Yeah, that's a really good point with uh, when we're talking about scalability. Uh, especially in this section, it's really important to come when you kind of talk about judging a system to understand what your scaling options are, whether it's up or out and how that affects basically the, the resources of the system under load. So the, basically those performance numbers and, uh, how much it, it costs you, <laughs> like literally, like how much money or resources it, it takes. Like that's how you truly measure a system. Like how well does it balance all those needs? So I already mentioned, you know, for a long time, the, the RDBMSs typically ran on a single machine. Um, you know, they might have had a failover or something, but they typically weren't clustered or anything like that. So, you know, 
what they pointed out in the book is as these distributed systems are becoming more common and, and the abstractions that are built on top of them are getting better, we're going to start seeing more of these commonplace, right? Like there for a while, it was really hard to do distributed computing, which it still is kind of hard. I mean, if you mess with it much, but things, the tooling's getting way better. And so it might become more common that instead of starting out with a single machine, you just start out with a scalable infrastructure. You look like you're about to say something there, Joe. No, I'm getting attacked by dogs. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry. You took the squirrel away. I took the squirrel away, and now yeah, they've got tired of fighting with each other. And now they're fighting me, and now you're suffering. That's awesome. Yep. Um. So th- this book actually talks about scalability as well as maintainability, and they definitely they're opposing forces. Right. Like if you really want to think about it, you make it more scalable. Well, it's probably going to be a lot harder to keep that entire thing running perfectly. Well, I mean, here's an easy way to think about this. You know, in the conversation we just had about like scaling up versus out. Right. And that, um, you know, with the complexity of that. Right. Because if you have, say, uh, two machines, right, that you've scaled up. Right. And. Well, I don't know. Would you consider that up or out? Because you have more than one. But let's say that let's say that you know you manually configured this, right? So so it's not it's not elastic. Um, it will be a lot easier if, when the time comes that you need to debug something, right? You know, I only got two machines to go to, right? So it's a lot easier to do that. Whereas if you're dealing with uh, elastic machines, right? that might scale up to like, let's say it, it auto scaled up to a thousand of those things, right? You, you can't think about a system where it's like, Oh, it's possible for me to log on to one of those. No, no, no. You know, you can't think of those systems in that kind of way at all. They're, they need, they, you're going to have to think about them in regards of, well, they're ephemeral. I, there's nothing there that's going to matter. Like everything that I would need for, uh, debugging purposes, like logging or logs, for example, is going to need to be not on that box. It's going to need to be shipped somewhere else, right? So that's part of the complexity that, that comes with it. So that's the trade-offs that you're making. Yep. Uh, you know, if I only have the one or two machines, I don't have. I can be a little bit lazy, maybe. Probably shouldn't be, but I could be. Right. In uh, the short term, you might be because yeah, it'll be more term, cost-effective, right? It might be just fine. Yeah. It's fine, Alan. It's <laughs> it, it's interesting. So they call this in the book, and I, we didn't have this in the notes here, but they called that the share nothing architecture, right? Like when you when you have a thousand machines, right? Like that's basically what you're saying is these things are sort of standalone things that can just operate on their own. Um, but this also brings it back around to the whole Kubernetes thing, right? Like that's kind of why like Kubernetes is sort of a big deal is it sort of has like a managed pipeline for its logs and all that. Because if you did have scaling set up inside it for containers, it could spin up a thousand of these things. Right. And it's sort of elastic. You don't really have to think or care about it. And it's got these things built into it already that help you manage and view logs and do that kind of stuff. So one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of Kubernetes is because they thought about a lot of the things that are really painful in the VM world, you know? Yeah, I'll say, um, you know, there's no such thing as a generic one-size-fits-all scalable architecture. And uh, the book, in many ways, is all about just those trade-offs that you have to make, whether it's in terms of scalability or maintainability or whatever. There's always trade-offs to have to make. But we'll say that, like I, th- I like you said, Alan, just kind of echoing you, I think 
Kubernetes is so popular now because that's probably about the closest thing we have for being a kind of one size fits all scalable architecture. It's not there. There's, you know, a lot of different complexities and things that aren't fully met or that you just have to solve somewhere else. And, and that onus goes on you. But I do think that's kind of like our current best hope in that direction. Now, wait, do you, you think that that's why Kubernetes is popular or do you think it's more that you can have these kind of cloud-like concepts without being specific to a cloud environment. Mm, that too. That's what I, 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 I think, think it's a whole it package. Yeah, I like think this is a way for um, kind of managing my architecture and it works locally and out in the cloud. And it gives me one kind of big box that I can kind of sort of almost get everything into. Yeah, I think... Yeah. I, I think it's both. I agree. I think part of it is once people realize what containers can do for them and how it can ease their lives, and then they realize, oh, well, that's great. I got that. And, you know, something like Docker Compose, right? Like, oh, I can stand it all up. But wait, if it dies, it's dead. Like, that's it. Then Kubernetes is that next evolution of, oh, oh, now I got something that can keep it alive for me, right? Like, I I think it's a little bit of everything. Like, when you start digging deep into it, like I talked about the log stuff, you know, all logs are exposed in a centralized way. So plugging in some sort of dashboard on top of it's not hard to do. As a matter of fact, there's a Pluralsight course I can link in the uh, description here that shows you how to take your Kubernetes thing. And you can basically route everything through Prometheus and then have a Grafana dashboard and see your entire infrastructure. You can see, how much CPU load is happening on each one of your nodes, how much uh, utilization is happening everywhere. And it's all because they basically, you know, Google and everybody else has had this problem for years. Like, hey, I need to be able to monitor this stuff. They built it into the to the platform. So I think it's a combination of everything. But anyways, um, yeah. So getting back to this, like the, the one size doesn't fit all, right? The next thing is your problems could be reads. It could be writes. It could be any number of things, right? The volume of data, the complexity of the data, whatever. Um, and they, they had a really good example that I basically put down here, mostly verbatim because it, it really demonstrates the problem. Systems that handle a hundred thousand requests per seconds at a kilobyte in size is very different from the needs of a system that handles three requests per minute, each with a file size of two gigs, right? Same throughput, same amount of data coming through, but very different requirements in terms of what they need in order to perform well. It's like a Dropbox versus a shopping site, right? Like That's a great point. Totally, totally different needs in order to make those things perform well. Mm-hmm. So uh, designing a scalable system based off bad assumptions can be both wasted time and uh, even worse counterproductive. So we kind of mentioned it's hard to uh, to really get that stuff going before you really know what you're doing. And in the early stage applications, it's often more important to be able to iterate quickly. Uh, so if we kind of run into it, like when you try to scale it too far ahead of time, you can get kind of tangled up in the weeds of hypotheticals. And uh, it's just really hard until you kind of know what you're going after. And that educative course that I always like to talk about, the the system design interview, it's it was really kind of striking to me how important the numbers and the performance uh, metrics came in to play in all of those systems. Like when they talk about doing a, a Dropbox or a, a Twitter, how important it is to to kind of know and have some estimates based on 
you know, reads and writes and throughput, basically the parameters that matter because those had really big effects on how you set things up. So I thought it was really happening and it, it ties in really well with the book. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to think about that. If you make the wrong assumption on what load parameters matter, how you could completely go the wrong way. Right. It's, uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, Look at the start of this conversation, right? right? Where I said that, you know, when, um, you know, we were focusing first on, you know, going after concurrent users, right? And, and how we had calculated that. And then we used that to decide, okay, this is how much infrastructure we need. And then if you recall, we ended up scaling that back down by half. Right. Right. Over time. Right. Oh, yeah. A good example, uh, too, if you've heard about how Twitter's architecture has uh, changed over time, because when they first came out, they didn't have to worry about so many, uh, uh, they didn't have to, they didn't predict some of the problems that they ended up having. Like, uh, so they changed architecture. And uh, the example I'm thinking specifically is um, they didn't really anticipate or hadn't planned for these kind of uh, super tweeters that have bazillions of followers, like the Kanye West and uh, the, the Taylor Swifts of the world who have billions of people following them so whenever they add a tweet their original architecture meant it was writing out things to all these people's feeds which is totally fine if you if each person had an average of 500 followers and totally terrible if people had 13 million so you know they had to kind of figure out how to balance that and adapt that as they went on and i don't think you can really avoid that (laughs) unless your service just doesn't take off at all that was good to know. that was actually one of the parts in the book that I think fi- that just hooked me when they were talking about the various different approaches they tried and and which one stuck and why and they had to think about the problem you know several different ways to even come up with a solution that that seemed like it would make sense. So yeah, that was awesome. All right, well, we'll have plenty of links for this in the uh, the resources we like section. And with that, we will head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the 15 billion tip of the week. <laughs> right. Hey, I only have one tonight. Oh. Yeah. So somebody's slacking. And I am slacking. Aha. Good pun. So here's the thing. If you ever have to go set up your coding block slack specifically because that's what you care about. Right. Obviously. If you ever need to go set that up on another computer, it can be really frustrating. So not just coding blocks, right? Like we're probably all a part of five or more slacks. So one of the things that's really irritating is if you go to slack.com and first I say, install the desktop app. So there's that. But if you go to slack.com and you go click to sign in at the top right. Um, or you're, uh, I think I'm signed in. I need to sign out, sign into another workspace. So if you do sign in, it'll ask you, Hey, which workspace are you wanting? So you have to know the URL or the name of it, right? So in our case, it's codingblocks.slack.com. So you can type in coding blocks. A better way to do this, everybody is down below that block where it says sign into your workspace. Underneath the continue, there's a thing that says find your workspace. Click that. It'll allow you to drop in your email address. And then it will send a link to your email address that you can click. And it'll have all the workspaces that you registered under that email address. 
and you can just launch each one of them. And if you have the desktop app installed, it'll say, hey, do you want to open this in the app? And if it does, it'll automatically add that workspace to it. So you don't have to remember the name of all the things that you've joined. You can just click some links and have everything set up. Do it that way. It's so much better. And because I have like three or four email addresses that are registered to these, <laughs> I can just do it a few times, have it send me the things, and then I can pop open all the ones. Why don't, why don't you just have these in your password manager so you can just I do. Slack? I do, but here's the problem. So in my password manager, you know, if it's all with my main email address, then I have like freaking 20 entries with, with my email address. No, 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 no. You're searching your your password manager wrong. I'm not searching my password manager at all. I type in my email address and I get an email sent to me and I can just click the links. It's easier. I So here's the thing. I don't want to have to remember the names of all the sites that I'm on, right? Like yeah. codingblocks.com no, and all that. So it's just easier. I, I, I prefer easy over anything nowadays. Just about. I'm just, I was just offering an alternative though. Cause if you go, if you were to just go into a new tab and in your password manager, right? You can search it and you can just type in slack.com and it would pull up all the different slacks yeah. that you're a part of. Yeah, I don't like And then click that and it would automatically take you to it. Yeah, I won't do that. Because I don't <laughs> want to have to receive an email. I want to get an email, man. I want to click a link. That's all I want to do. I want to click a link and it'll tell me the five that I'm joining. Hey, launch. Done, done, done. So, yes, I like mine. <laughs> hey, you know how you were talking, uh, ooh, was it last episode or maybe it was the episode back, I think, um, we were talking about like the Slack shortcuts. Oh yeah. The shortcut keys. Yeah. And one that I like stumbled on that I was like, it was kind of like a, your response was like, what magic did I just do? <laughs> uh, related to the console tip yeah. from last episode, I think it was, Yeah. you know, uh, when I was in Slack and I did uh, a control T or if you're on a Mac command T. Is that the threads? No, it brings up a search. Uh-huh. It'll search across comments and asides, Eureka's more and it, it they will just search against all of it. Oh, you were going to try and open a new tab somewhere. Yeah. I I, yeah. I didn't realize I was in Slack. And so I was like, you know, let me open up a new tab. And then Slack came up to the screen and I'm like, whoa, what, <laughs> what is this? What am I looking at? The accidental things are like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I felt bad because I was like, oh, we talked about all the Slack shortcuts and I didn't realize that was one. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, for my... Tip of the week. Uh, okay. Pfft. You know, I talked about back in what episode was that? One, one twelve. Um, I was like, oh, hey, you know, hey, here's this cool thing that uh, I had just found. Remember how we talked about felt and how I was like, oh, you ever feel like you're dumb in technology? Okay. So I was like, hey, there's this cool thing with, uh, you know, with Microsoft, with it uh, in .NET that you could use the code DOM to, you know, create and manage uh, code and everybody like jumped on me. and was like outlaw. What are you doing, man? That's like, so, you know, 2005, 2005 called. They want their compiler back. It's all about Roslyn these days. So fine. Use Roslyn. So uh, I'll, I'll include a link, but yeah, I've, I've been working in some pretty cool stuff here lately where it's like, I'm, if you're familiar with like I, the closest thing that I can think I think of it as is like eval kind of statements like in Perl for example, uh, where where you could like just take in some arbitrary string and then like execute it, and so that's the type of thing I've been working on here lately, and it's all been using like Roslyn APIs, um, but you know doing that obviously in a C sharp kind of world right, and where you can like um, 
take take in some use some string that that you know is code so you could compile it and then load that assembly all of this happening in memory and so it's pretty cool so i'll include a link to Roslyn. so yeah i guess my tip of the week would be to use Roslyn and not listen to my uh comment from episode 112 about code dumb because <laughs> i might have been uh, code dumb oh uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, so uh, it's that time of year again <laughs> Terrible. when everyone's <laughs> – We got the Charles Terrible. Barkley. Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> everyone's doing advent calendars. And uh, one I talked about last year doing uh, was advent of code. And uh, I didn't make it all the way through last year. And uh, I think it's pretty tough to make it all the way through realistically. Uh, but the cool thing about this site is that a new problem gets released every night at midnight uh, Eastern. Uh it may be your time. I'm not sure how that works exactly, but uh, <laughs> a new problem comes out uh, at midnight my time, which is, you know, sleep time. But that's okay because I can do it at my leisure. And unless I'm competing for points with people who do these problems in like two seconds and like are just way above my level and I have no chance anyway, uh, then it doesn't matter. And so you can go back to even previous years and do problems. And so if you're having a problem with, say, like the third problem this year, you could actually uh, just go back to previous years and try doing some of the earlier problems and kind of practice up some of these problems. I think it's just a, it's a cool way of doing things. Now, they are hard, though, uh, if you're not used to doing these types of problems because I've just kind of touched about, like, solving kind of programming challenges is almost like its own skill that's kind of different from day-to-day working. Uh, but there's a bunch of them out there. I think this is the third or fourth year, and each one has uh, 25 problems and uh, two parts to each. So that's a, a lot of potential problems out there. And uh, they're pretty cool and innovative, and they help you save Christmas. So you should go to adventofcode.com and check it out. So what if you just wait till Christmas Day to sit down and do it? Uh, there's not many people in the world who could do all the problems in one day. <laughs> uh, I, I would to, like to see that. I might actually try this. I didn't do it last Do it. Uh, the problem the problems kind of ebb and flow. I don't know that they necessarily get harder every day. They're They're – kind of tend to give you an easier day on days that follow a harder one. Uh, but there's some really cool ones. I've done, done some interesting, um, some data structures. There's like a circular, uh, you can, you can implement however you want, but I ended up doing like a circular link list and some other cool stuff, some other cool trees last year. And, uh, this year's going okay. Uh, it's never quite as good as I want. Cause I'll, I'll get hung up on something stupid and like spend a half hour on like something that should have taken zero seconds, but that's, that's what it's like to code, right? That's what happens when you try and scale it. Yeah, the other uh, yesterday, I did a, like a, a sweet little Kotlin trick where I did a lazy initializer was setting a value lazily whenever you asked for it, and so that way I was able to uh, save myself some time by not calculating values unless you actually needed them. So I made this cool little premature optimization, and lo and behold, I ended up making some modifications to the object, not realizing that, of course, lazy is only evaluated once. It's just evaluated lazily. So it wasn't returning values for my changes to the object. (laughs) That's what I get for not being immutable anyway. But anyway, it was just kind of a a fun little thing that, uh, you know, you do run into problems like that at at work or whatever, but uh, I don't really do too many circular link lists or BFS trees or whatever at work in a normal day. So it's fun. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, just to kind of sum things up real quickly, scalability is a term we use to describe a system's ability to cope with increased load. And we study it and look at it because load is frequently a cause of reliability problems and outages. Uh, Load parameters are how we measure our system's load, and the performance numbers are measures of how well our system is doing. Uh, 
and we can judge systems basically on how well they scale related to kind of the balance of load parameters, performance numbers, and resource costs we talked about. And don't forget to leave a comment if you want to win this book because it's awesome. Oh, I was totally paying attention. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I was actually, I thought that Joe was going to say this part. So I was kind of waiting on him. <laughs> And then I was going to say to send your feedback, questions, and rants to uh, Slack and to be sure to follow us on Twitter at Coding Blocks or head over to uh, some website, codingblocks.net. Now we're all jacked. So we're all blocked up. That's what happens. <laughs> and then you can find, you'll find some links there at the top of the page. You Head of the those. line blocking is what just yeah. occurred. That was the latency, and here's the response times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you covered it all. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Well, what? listen, listen to la- the end of last episode if you want to hear what we normally say. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> good call. No, we gotta say it. What? No, 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 no. Fine. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> no, we're not. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, search for more using your favorite podcast app. Be sure to leave us a review at www.codingbox.net/slash/review. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. While you're up there, look at our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. <laughs> And send a few questions right to the Slack. We can follow us on Twitter at Clubless or head over to Clubless tonight where you can find all our social links at the top of the page. You didn't really say any words there, man. I, I don't even know what just happened. It was a blur. Yeah, it was. 